are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. But before we hear from Stuart, we're going to hear a reading from Genesis chapter 3 from uh, Esther. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat the, from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was sitting with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thank you, Esther, for the first part of our reading, and welcome to you at Hope Church. I suggest you take a moment now to get yourself a Bible to have open in front of you. These verses we're looking at today are so foundational, and seeing this chapter in the context of what comes before and what goes after will really help. Let's pray together. Father, help us to concentrate on your word this morning. Help us to learn from it. Help us to be honest about what it says about our own hearts. Holy Spirit, show us where we have fallen short of reflecting God's image and lead us to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, my family has made me a forky and a knifey, and they're right here with me today to illustrate Adam and Eve today. If you have children with you, then you might want to invite them to spot any differences in forky and knifey after we break halfway through the talk for a song. And you might want to discuss why they've changed. If you have no idea who Forky and Knifey are, don't worry. Just imagine they're Adam and Eve for us this morning. So Chris has been taking us in the last few weeks through chapters one and two of Genesis. We've heard about God being there at the beginning, bringing everything into being, breathing life into our world, crafting every living thing. Everything has been good, good, good. And it gets even better. 
God crowns his creation with humankind, the pinnacle of his work, a creature that's like a mirror of God. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. The only not good thing comes in chapter 2, verse 18, when God sees that Adam is alone, so he makes Eve. Humankind lives in perfect harmony with God and with each other in paradise. But then, maybe we turn on the news and we say to ourselves, hmm, this world isn't like this, really. And more personally, you might think of the harsh words or unkind thoughts you've had about a member of your household or about your next door neighbour. And you say to yourself, I'm not like this. I'm far from perfect. And I often feel far from God. So how do we reconcile Genesis 1 and 2 with our current experience of our world, of our relationships and our experience of God? Well, Genesis 3 is our answer. This chapter helps us to understand our world and ourselves. This isn't just a quaint myth about a couple in a garden thousands of years ago. This is our story. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Francis Schaeffer, a great Christian thinker, once said, we are glorious because we were created by God for the noble purpose of being his image bearers. Yet we are ruins because sin has marred the divine image we were designed to display. I find that description of the human condition, we are glorious ruins, to be both inspiring, we're image bearers of God, as well as realistic, that glory has been ruined by, in us by our sin and by the sins of others. But we are Hope Church and we know that there is hope. God wants to restore us to our former glory. A bit like Forky in Toy Story 4, we might look at ourselves, all the mess we've made through our bad decisions, and think we're worthless. Now in the film, Forky decides that he's rubbish and he keeps trying to throw himself in the bin. But the other toys remind him that his value comes from his creator, who's a girl called Bonnie. She just took bits and bobs and formed him into her object of love. And her name is written on him, but she gives him value. Likewise, physically, we're just the dust of the earth. So we need to keep reminding ourselves of our creator and the value that he bestows upon us. We'll be working through the chapter in six short sections this morning, looking at the deception, the transgression, the concealment, parts one and two, and judgment, and then finally God's mercy, six short sections. Firstly, let's look at the deception, verses one to five. You might want to get the Bible out there in front of you. So this was the first time anyone had ever questioned God, but it certainly wouldn't be the last time. The devil certainly questions God's character. Our world questions his existence. And we ourselves might question whether he intends good for us through all the challenges we face. So let's look at the common threads that come in these questions that ask, in some shape or form, did God really say? Firstly, these questions tend to twist God's words. So the snake suggests that God said, 
You must not eat from any tree in the garden. But actually, what God said was, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die, back in chapter 2. So God's actual boundary was less restrictive than any tree. And the consequences of crossing the boundary are conveniently ignored. Which brings us on to the second theme with these did God really say questions. They tend to cast God as the spoiled sport, the party pooper, the grumpy parent that just says no to everything fun, the referee eager to show you the red card. Which brings us on to the third theme for these questions. They focus our attention on what is not allowed rather than what is allowed. So if I tell you about a ball game where you're not allowed to handle the ball, you can't go outside the white lines, you have to do what you're told by a person with a loud whistle, it doesn't sound like much fun, does it? But of course, the game of football is the one of the most popular games in the world, and the fun comes from enjoying all the things you can do, knowing that all the players have to stick to the rules. Otherwise, it's just chaos and everyone would go home. Now, soon after I became a Christian, I carried on getting drunk when I was at university. I liked getting drunk. People thought that I was funny when I was drunk. It helped me get over my social inhibitions. Did God really say I can't have fun without hurting anyone else? Of course, God doesn't say you can't have fun. He's given us alcohol to enjoy in moderation. I remember fellow Christians loving me through those times, patiently looking out for me as I made an idiot of myself, ensuring that I got home okay. And in time, God convicted me that what I was doing was wrong. And wonderfully, he showed me that I didn't need to get drunk to relax and enjoy company. His way was better than my way. But it did take some time and lots of love from fellow Christians to help me see that. Let's get back to the story. So no, God did not exactly say you must not eat from any tree in the garden, but it's a clever twist of God's words and of his character, which is enough to plant a seed in Eve's mind. Move on to verses two and three. Thankfully, Eve points out that God has allowed them to eat fruit from all the other trees. He's not the party pooper. But she too doesn't correctly quote God. She says, you must not touch it or you will die. Actually, God had said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And that might sound like a small technical difference, but to be well defended against the devil's temptations, we need to be familiar with the exact words of God. We are in a spiritual battle and the more familiar we are with what Ephesians 6 calls the sword of the spirit of the Bible the more we will be equipped to rebuff these sorts of temptations, just like Jesus did when he was tempted in the desert. Verses four and five of chapter three. The snake now moves from subtle twisting of God's words to blatant contradiction. God has said in chapter two, when you eat of it, you will surely die. Whereas the snake now says, you will not surely die. And he justifies this by suggesting a bad motive in God's heart. He doesn't want you to be like a, to be a God like him. Now Eve should have rebuffed the snake with the truth and walked away. Instead, she gets drawn into dialogue with her tempter. And now the real temptation comes. 
you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's various understandings of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the most likely, I think, is that its fruit gave the person freedom to judge for themselves what is good and evil, instead of trusting that God's boundaries are for our good and that he's in charge. A simple example of this is a parent telling a child not to put her hand in a fire, but the child reaches out and wants to feel it for herself rather than trusting that the parent knows what is good for him or her. The child is determined to find out for herself. But of course, this impulse is not limited to little children. As adult children of God, we can be tempted to want to see for ourselves rather than trusting God, can't we? So the account in this chapter of the deception of Eve is really our story. We are tempted to let God's words be twisted to let the goodness of his character be questioned and to give space in our minds for these thoughts to develop and grow. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this, after, every, after evil desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And that's exactly what's going to happen next in the transgression, verses six and seven. So the deception led to the sin, God had given them responsibility and freedom in the garden. He placed them in this paradise where they could walk daily with God unhindered. He'd just given them one thing they mustn't do, but they threw it all away by listening to the deception and acting upon it. The song we sang earlier had a refrain, Father, not my will, but yours be done. But isn't our natural inclination really, Father, not your will, but my will? be done. It sounds very similar, doesn't it? But it's a world apart. The snake had said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Had that come true? Well, insofar as they had experienced doing an evil act and they'd lost some of their innocence, yes. But were they glad to have done it? I very much doubt it. Their new awareness of their nakedness meant they were no longer free to walk naked. Their sin had seemed like it would give them more power and knowledge, but it didn't make them on a par with God, like the snake had suggested. They had thrown away their freedoms and they felt the need to conceal themselves. Which brings us on to the concealment, part one, where they conceal themselves in verses eight to 10. They were now less free, they were afraid, they, were, they hid from God. And it's easy to laugh at them, isn't it? can you hide from God? Of course he knows what you've done and where you are. But don't we hide from God? How easy do we find it to pray after we've lost our temper and said unkind things to another person? Do we find it natural to confess our sin when we've looked at stuff online that we know is wrong? It's in the very DNA of sin that it distances us from God. Our guilt makes us want to withdraw. Adam responds to God. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. We know that God sees our activities, but more importantly, we know that he sees our hearts and our hearts often stray from following him, don't they? The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
Matthew 22. But we know we fall short of that. We want to love God a bit, but we've got our own plans for our lives. We want to test the boundaries that he's set for our lives to make sure that we agree with them. We want to be like God in charge of our own lives, just like Adam and Eve. And that's the heart of sin, a rejection of our creator, a hiding from him. It's like a child determined to drive a car and put his parents in the back seat. Exciting, perhaps, for the child, but we all know it's a disaster in the making. So does Adam confess his sin? Well, no, he just explains why he's hiding from God. And that reveals his sin. Let's see if Adam and Eve take responsibility for what they've done. In the concealment part two, verses 11 to 13. Adam and Eve are not a good model of confession, I'm afraid. The concealment continues. They hide from God because they want to hide their sin. Adam blames two people. Firstly, he blames the woman, Eve. And then by saying, the woman you put here with me, he implies that it was God's fault for creating Eve. And Eve tries to pass the buck too. The snake deceived me. Each of them makes the minimal acknowledgement of their wrong act. Adam says, I ate it. And Eve says, I ate. No, sorry for disobeying you. No, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have listened to her. I shouldn't have listened to the snake. To be meaningful, confession of sin needs to involve repentance. A heartfelt and decisive turning away from what I've done wrong. If I say something hurtful to my colleague, it's easy for me to say things that sound like an apology, something like, I recognise that my words weren't the best way of supporting you in that situation. But we need to take responsibility and we need to say sorry and we need to be specific about what we did wrong. And we need to show that we're going to take, take steps so that we don't do it again. And how much more do we need to confess our sins to God? When was the last time that we bowed our heads before God and confessed to him in detail things that we've done wrong? or how we've ignored Jesus' call to follow him in every area of our lives. I know I'm guilty often of ending the day with a quick, I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've done wrong today. But this is too vague. It wouldn't be good enough, would it, after a blazing row with my wife to say to her at bedtime, sorry about all that, see you in the morning. Actually, I think that would rub salt in the wound, wouldn't it? Because what I'd really be saying is, I don't think I really acted that bad, and I reckon you'll get over it by tomorrow. With God, it can be easy to take his grace for granted. Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. He's paid the price. All my sins are dealt with. I just need to press the all clear button from time to time to remind God that my debt is paid. The Apostle John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to lead us now in a prayer of confession and then we'll listen to a song. Although we have all strayed from following God this week, perhaps listening to ungodly thoughts, 
doing wrong things and hiding from God, I invite you now to confess your sins before a merciful God. And then we're going to listen to, this, to a song about how we can be restored to God's presence when we know that our sins are forgiven. Asking God for forgiveness isn't about making ourselves feel bad. Confessing is part of properly repenting before him and to claim the forgiveness that is in Jesus. This is doing business with God and laying our sins at the foot of the cross. Let's not follow the Adam and Eve model, hiding from God, minimising our sin, blaming others, blaming God. Let us take responsibility and turn from sin. So we'll pray together now. I'll pause for the middle, in the middle short, uh, briefly to allow you to confess personally whatever you need to to God. And then we'll go straight to the song. And after that, Esther will complete our reading for today. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and confess that we too have fallen short as image bearers of the almighty God. We have chosen, even this week, the attitude of, not your will, but my will be done. Lord, we each bring before you now particular ways in which we have done wrong things, said unkind words, failed to love others as we should. And we ask for your forgiveness, which restores us into right relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Take me back to the garden Lead me back to the moment I heard your voice Take me back to communion Lead me back to the moment I saw your face And it was all so simple It was easy to love space between us it was easy to trust you are closer closer than my skin
There in the place I'm fully known It was all so simple You're so easy to love No space between us You're so easy to trust You are closer, closer than my skin You are in the air I'm breathing in Here's where the dead things Come back to living I feel my heart beating again Feels so good to know you are my friend Yes, this is where I'm meant to be Me and you and you and me to prove a thing you've already approved of me this is where I'm meant to be me and you and you and me no I don't have to prove a thing you've already approved of me cause you dead things come back to living I feel my heart beating again it feels so good to know you are my friend here's where the dead things come back to living I feel my heart beating again so good to know you are my friend. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and what all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food, until you return to the ground, since it was from since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has become now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Welcome back. Well, that song we heard talks about walking once more in the garden with God, remembering that we were created to be close to God and without any barrier. Forgiveness of sins does restore us to a right relationship with God. But we remain in this fallen world and battling with our sinful natures. The intimacy of which that song talks will only be fully realised in the life to come for those who trust in Jesus. For now, let's return to the narrative that Esther has just read so well for us. And we'll look at the judgment, verses 14 to 20. Following the fall, God shows us the seriousness of sin by explaining the judgment on the snake for Adam and for Eve. We'll come back to the judgment on the snake in the next section when we look at God's mercy. I want to highlight a few things for now from God's judgments on Adam and Eve. Verse 19. Firstly, obeying God is dis firstly, disobeying God is very serious. Back in verse 11, God asks Adam, have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? He's reminding Adam that this was a command. It wasn't a kindly bit of advice. It was deadly serious. Deadly serious. To dust you will return is the judgment. Sin leads to death, both physical and spiritual. Which brings us on to the next point. Disobeying God has consequences. For Eve, it brought very severe pains in childbirth. It introduced conflict between people. It turned Adam's work from a joy into painful toil. It brought distance between people and God. No longer in this life could they walk intimately with God in the garden. But ultimately, their disobedience brought death. Our fallen world is not how God intended. We don't have to blame God for what is wrong with our world. Rather, we collectively need to bear responsibility for it. The decision of Adam and Eve to turn from trusting God to trusting their own instincts 
has led to our fallen world. And none of us is any better. Psalm 14 verse 3 says, All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Even as Christians, our waywardness still has severe consequences. Sin corrupts our world, our families, our relationship with God. If we trust in Jesus, then the penalty falls on him rather than on us. But we are still called to obedience and God still punishes sin. So let us not be complacent about sin in our lives. It is serious and it has serious consequences. The Christian life is an ongoing battle to turn away from sin and towards Jesus. If we're not daily tackling our sin, it's not because we're somehow perfect. It's more likely that we are deceived, just like Adam and Eve were, or that we're minimising our sin, just like Adam and Eve did. Verses 21 to 24. I want to end today by emphasising three points of God's mercy in this passage. Firstly, it might seem like a small thing, but God made garments for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. If he were a vengeful God, he might leave them naked to remind them of their sin. But he recognises that they have lost their innocence. He is still their father, and even in the aftermath of their great rejection of him, he stoops down and he makes them some clothes. I know as a parent, if one of my sons says something hurtful to me or blatantly disobeys what I've asked him to do, my first inclination can be to stew in my anger. But God, with his wonderfully patient, fatherly heart, serves his children in their need. Let's look at verses 22 to 24. Secondly, God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Of course, this was in part an act of judgment, but it was also merciful. God realised that if they were allowed to live forever in this fallen state, they would remain always estranged from God. And then verse 15, the third mercy comes here. Back at the, during the judgment on the snake. It's easy to overlook this, but this is a verse that's got theologians so excited through the centuries that they've invented a special term just for this one verse, the proto-evangelium. And it's made up of two Greek words, protos, which means first, and evangelion, which means good news. It's the first good news. If we identify the snake as Satan, the devil, then part of the curse on him is that one of Eve's offspring will bruise his head. Many interpreters see this offspring of Eve as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He, singular, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus was struck on the cross, but of course this was the place of his greatest, his greatest victory over Satan when he rose again from the dead after three days later. And what is so wonderful about the placement of this prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 is that the hope is planted here at the fall of mankind. Just when everything seems to be going wrong, God is already revealing his great rescue, which will come centuries down the line in a particular descendant 
of the first sinners. So to conclude, we've seen today that Adam and Eve were deceived by the devil. We need to be on guard and soaked in scripture so that we're ready when temptation comes. We can't dismiss the story of Genesis 3 as just an ancient parable. The New Testament writers understood the transgression to be real and having great consequences for every human being in history, in God's judgment upon Adam and Eve, and hence the whole human race. Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all had sinned. We've also looked at the seriousness of sin, how it causes each of us to conceal ourselves from God and how a holy God must respond with consequences, his judgment. Adam and Eve modelled for us how not to take responsibility for sin, but we reflected on how we can take confession seriously. And there is hope, despite sin in the world and in our lives, we still bear the image of God. Remember, we're glorious ruins. Although we are all rebels against our creator God, he is merciful if we come to Jesus, to the offspring of Eve, the one who crushed Satan on the cross and who can reconcile us to our Father in heaven. Let's pray together as we end. Father, we thank you that we are made to be mirrors of your glory. You designed men and women to be your image bearers. And yet we confess that we have fallen short of glorifying you in our thoughts, our actions and in our relationships. Thank you for Jesus, that great sin crusher who took the judgment for our sin on the cross, that all who trust in him might be rescued from the right judgment of God. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchgilford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.